Are we on? Oh, well, great, great. Welcome, everyone. And we're so happy to host you today and, and resume this partnership. And so we're going to introduce ourselves. I'll just start, and and then we're going to go at the end of the table. So, I all, so I'm already here as the chair of the Montgomery County Planning Board, and we'll have Superintendent McKnight. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Good evening, everyone. Monifa McKnight, Superintendent for Montgomery County Public Schools. Good evening. Good evening. I'm Carla Sylvester, President of the Board. Josh, you can start back there. And we'll Now is it on? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Hi, everyone. My name is Josh Linden. I'm Commissioner on the Montgomery County Planning Board. James Hedrick, Commissioner on the Montgomery County Planning Board. Great to see you all. Shebra Evans, serving as the Vice President on the Montgomery County Board of Education. And then... Uh, good evening. My name is Mitro Peduim. I'm one of the commissioners on the planning board. Good evening. I'm Sean Bartley, and I'm a commissioner on the planning board. Good evening. Buenas noches. My name is Grace Rivera Oven, and I represent District 1 on the school board. I'm one of the new board members elected in November. Good evening, everyone. I'm Mike Riley, director of the Parks Department. Good evening, Tanya Stern, Acting Planning Director with the Planning Department. I'm Gary Burnett, I'm Deputy Director for Montgomery Parks. Uh, good evening, Robert Cronenberg, I'm Deputy Director with the Planning Department. Good evening, I'm Lori Christina Webb, I'm the Chief of Staff for the Board, and if I could just take a point of privilege and introduce my staff, which is Ravel Fitzpatrick, who's our ombudsman, and Patty Upswing, who's, spring, who's our new legislative coordinator. Thank you. Good evening, Carrie McCarthy, Division Chief for Research and Strategic Projects at Montgomery Planning. Good evening, Hey Beck, Schools Planner for Planning Department. Eli Glacier, a Transportation Planner at the Planning Department. Uh, Patrick Butler, Up County Planning Chief. Elsa Heisel McCoy, Chief Down County Planning. Once again, Patty Ersprung, I'm the Coordinator of Legislative Affairs for the Board of Education. Good evening. I'm Carrie Sanders. I'm the Chief of the Mid-County Planning Division at the Planning Department. Good evening, everyone. I'm Atul Sharma. I'm an assistant to the Deputy Director of Planning. Again, Ravel D. Fitzpatrick, he, him, his, and I am the Ombuds person housed within the Montgomery County Board of Education. And I'm uh, Darren Fluche, Division Chief for Park Planning and Stewardship at Montgomery Parks. I'm Adrian Karamihas. I'm the Director of Capital Planning and Real Estate for MCPS. Seth Adams, Associate Superintendent for the Department of Facilities Management, MCPS. And I'm Jason Sartori. I'm Chief of Countywide Planning and Policy here at the Planning Department. Welcome. So I'd like to have a few remarks followed by um, Ms. Silvestri and Ms. McKnight, and then we'll turn it over to Jason and get us going. 
So I want to again welcome the Board of Education members and the MCPS staff at our new headquarters. Uh, and when we next time we'll we'll build in more time so we can give you a tour. Uh, yes, thank you so much for joining us. Like we're we're happy to restart our annual dinner and meeting. So we're, this happens year after year after year. You know, this time to connect and overview shared initiatives is of critical importance given the overlapping roles we play in ensuring a thriving future in Montgomery County. We are modeling, we are modeling for our staff to coordinate and collaborate with each other through our respective processes as we bring to fruition new projects and opportunities throughout the county. Before I dive in too much to our shared opportunities, I wanted to take a moment and highlight our, my prior priorities as planning board chair. They are, the top priorities are to create complete communities that support vital businesses and residents, accelerate housing production in the, in the county, again, it's accelerate housing production in the county, maintain and upgrade existing parks while also creating new parks and recreation spaces. These priorities directly dovetail into this shared opportunity before us to deepen the partnership and collaboration between parks planning and MCPS. We can do this through adoption of the MOU drafted over a year ago, among other things. The MOU provides a framework not only for increasing collaboration, but encouraging coordination much earlier than typically occurred in our efforts. This can only lead to better outcomes for people and communities we collectively serve. I know that our collaboration also extends well beyond the focus of the MPD, M MOU. Earlier today, the planning board approved the resolution, a resolution that designates Edward U. Taylor School in Boyd's to the master plan for historic preservation. Later this fall, the resolution will be adopted by the full commission, which will make the designation official. This is a culmination of over four years of effort, which included coordination with MCPS staff. The Taylor School joins only two other county school buildings in receiving this designation, Chevy Chase, Bethesda Chevy Chase High School and Clarksburg High School. Our historic preservation team has also been working with the MCPS Office of Curriculum and Instructional Programs in preparing webinars for high school students and MCPS faculty on the county's history, with a particular focus on LGBTQ plus history. Our pedestrian master plan team has been coordinating with MCPS district operations to administer system-wide student surveys to better understand how schools children typically travel to and from school. Also this morning, we approved the scope of work for the next upgrade to the growth and infrastructure policy, which evaluates the adequacy of our infrastructure, primarily schools and transportation to accommodate future development. You'll hear more about this later. And our park staff continues to work closely with MCPS on the rehabilitation and maintenance of athletic fields on MCPS properties, and more on this later too by Mike Riley. I'm looking forward to getting to know each of you better and identifying more ways we can work together collaboratively. I know our teams have put together a jam-packed agenda this evening. While they will touch on the highlights, 
of each subject area on behalf of Parks and Planning, we're more happy, more than happy to get together with you anytime you want to dive deeper into the details. Uh, I am confident that this meeting will serve as a renewed step in deepening the relationship between Planning Board, the Board of Education, and our teams. I look forward to hearing from everyone this evening and working towards our shared goals in an ongoing and our ongoing M MOU. I invite Board President Carla Silvestri and the Board Superintendent, Ms. Dr. McKnight, to provide additional opening remarks before we move on in our agenda. So welcome again, and we look forward to our collaborative relationship. Thank you. Thank you again. Um, on behalf of the Board of Education, we are delighted to be with you uh, once again. It was, it's been a couple of years since we've met. You were at the old building uh, last time we met, and we are so impressed with your new facilities. We uh, are also moving soon, so we hope to host you at our new facilities maybe next year. Um, you know, we, our work uh, collides in a, in a number of sectors, and so it's so important that we have good working relationships between the bo both boards and our staff um, so that we can support each other. We can support the work of the planning board and the support the work of the school system. You're right, we do have a jammed uh, agenda for today, but really important work in terms of um, what we can expect for the upcoming year. We have a boundary study with the reopening of the Charles Woodward High School. Who doesn't love a boundary study? Um, <laughs> that's going to be a hot topic for the entire county and our community. Uh, we also want to hear about the master plan and how it relates to uh, safe, walk, safe routes to school and pedestrian safety for our students. Uh, we're going to update you on our anti-racist uh, work with the school system. And finally, uh, the, the collaboration between parks and our athletic field. So looking forward to the conversation, and thank you so much for hosting us here tonight. Okay. Again, good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for hosting us and beginning with dinner. The next time it smelled so good, I'm going to make sure I'm here at the start of it um, to enjoy every bit. But thank you for being such great uh, hosts and welcoming us, the Board of Education, and myself and our staff here to continue our collaborative relationship. Um, if I remember correctly, the last time we were with the planning board, we were actually on a bus and traveling throughout Montgomery County. It was a, you know, a, a great bus trip day, and it does all of us good sometimes to get on a bus um, and, and drive around, and we were able to go out and visit some school sites and really look at opportunities that we could further develop. And so um, that was just one way that we were entering into a space of um, you know, re-agreement around what that collaboration looked like and how we were going to define that moving forward and going out and taking a look together at, um, our, you know, at our site so that we could talk about shared opportunities and some of the challenges that we face when we're going out some of those sites together. So I do look forward to us making meaning of our work by continuing to do things like that. Um, yes, when we have our meetings and um, I look forward to uh, us continuing to, to come here and, and invite you over to our space. But I think to also get out and do some of that out in the field work together is going to be a valuable experience that we can continue to build on. So I do look forward to that. Um, Chair Harris, I want to thank you for just mentioning the historic preservation work and how our curriculum teams have been a part of that. Um, I believe one of the best 
lessons we can provide for our children is what the history has been so that they can understand context of, of what we, they want the future to be and how they can continue to build that. And um, just to know that, you know, we don't do that alone and we do that in partnership with so many of others like yourselves, um, it's just, I, I would often refer to one of the strengths of our community. And so that's just one of many ways that I think we've created those collaborative relationships that we want to continue to build on. I cannot think of one office within our whole system of MCPS that does not involve in some way a part of the work that you do as planning board members, right? I mean, as you were going around and sharing your titles, you know, from transportation to planning to facilities, all of those pieces, um, the work does continue to overlap. So um, in our effort to continue to, you know, embrace working from a collaborative spirit, know that that's how we come in partnership with you this evening. Um, so I just want to say that I'm, I'm happy to be here um, as we continue to think about opportunities to benefit the residents of Montgomery County. I think that is beneficial to us both, um, to Montgomery County Board of Education, MCPS, as well as the planning board. So as we continue to discover those opportunities to do that, I find it as a win for our entire community. So what you have in us is a partner to be able to do that. And so I look forward to our meeting tonight, kicking that conversation off and our continued work together. And I want to thank you to our staff as well. Um, tonight we came back in, I was just saying to Seth and, and Adrian, I was like, wow, we're back. You know, having our planning meetings, a different room, a different space, but just so glad to be back here. And I also wanted to acknowledge our chief operating officer, Mr. Brian Hull, who came in. Um, so he has joined us and we are happy to have him here with us as well. So thank you very much. Okay, all right, so I'll try to uh, kick us off here um, with the, the meeting, just with a, a quick overview of the agenda. I'm actually not gonna go through this, but I, I wanna highlight that there is a lot on here, and it's been mentioned a few times. And so uh, we're gonna try to stick to these time uh, allocations here. And again, that means that we're really just gonna touch the surface of, on a lot of these things. And if there is a topic that either board would appreciate to dive a little bit deeper into, uh, I'm sure staff on either side would be more than welcome to visit uh, one of your meetings and, 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 and get into a, a deeper discussion on these. Uh, compared to last time, unfortunately, we don't have that bus ride again. We're not going to go out on site. That was great. And um, this is really more an opportunity today for everyone to get to know each other a little bit better and what we do. We have five new board members on our side, and we know we've got a few board members at the, at the Board of Education as well. So this will be a good opportunity just to get to know each other better. Uh, and so there'll be a lot of presentation on these topics here. Okay, so the first thing we had on the agenda was an overview of our coordinated functions. So uh, I've got two different presentations. Here we go. So just give a quick overview of the, the planning process MOU that was mentioned earlier by Chair Harris. Uh, when we met two years ago uh, at MCPS, we had a, a conversation about well, first, we hear a lot from the public about the need for us to coordinate our efforts and to work better together. I think that in a lot of ways, we do work really well together. Uh, we do more coordinating than I think is publicly uh, visible. Um, but the whole point, uh, you know, we, we, what came out of that discussion last time was a desire to craft an MOU that specifically would outline how each of us would engage the other in our respective processes. And you know, there's an element of that that is kind of public facing, to be able to show people, look, 
we're serious about working together. We've heard what you've said, but it's more than just optics. It, these are things that we actually need to be doing and need to be coordinating with each other on and much earlier in our respective planning processes. And so uh, just to give an update on where we are, we have drafted the MOU. There's a copy of it in front of you. Um, it says draft across it. Uh, it's, it's been done for a while. We're hoping that we can kind of push it through our legal teams and, and get this uh, activated. But in the meantime, we wanted to kind of walk through the different elements of that. And so uh, I will say that this was the result of a lot of work from people on both sides. Uh, we meet on a monthly basis to talk about a whole range of things, construction projects, uh, uh, master plans, and the MOU. And it was also another group, a design uh, work, a school design work group that a tool we'll talk a little bit more about. And so I'm going to pass it off now to, oh, uh, these are the five different articles of it. And we're going to walk through not the first one, but the, the, the remaining three, uh, four. So I'm going to pass it off to Carrie Sanders to talk a little bit about the master plan process that we have at the planning department. Thank you, Jason. Uh, Carrie Sanders, wonderful to be with all of you today. Um, I just wanted to start by thanking Seth Adams, um, who uh, has been working with us throughout this process on the MOU and has brought Adrian, has brought members of his team throughout the process to work with us on this MOU. Um, I think that the master and sector planning is a good place to start. I'm going to talk a little bit about that, and then I'm going to turn it over to a tool, and he's going to talk more specifically about some of our regulatory processes, uh, specifically mandatory referrals that deal with schools. Um, but for the master planning um, and sector planning, this is really where the planning department um, works with communities to develop a vision for the future with the community. And usually that future is like a long-range future, 30 years, um, as an example. Sometimes when we do master and sector planning, we're also like looking at shorter-term recommendations that can kind of address like urgent issues in the community as well. So the master plans sometimes will have short-term recommendations and then also sort of this longer-range vision. Um, obviously, schools is like a very important piece of that. <laughs> so we want to make sure that, and I think we are, you know, in very close contact with MCPS as we're coming up with these master plans and these monthly meetings that Jason spoke of are very helpful for that. Um, but we want to continue to do that in a really organized way. And, and I think this MOU is helpful because it sort of sets these different milestones and steps to make sure that we're in close coordination. Um, because we know that, you know, when we have meetings with the community, one of the biggest things that they want to talk about is schools. So we want to make sure we're, we're very coordinated with you all and, um, I'm not going to go through every element that we have listed in here, but I do think, you know, looking at the enrollment projections is also is, is a really important piece of what we're going to be doing um, in our engagement. And then also, you know, we've we've done this on a couple of recent plans, um, working closely with MCBS so we can reach uh, community members that you're already coordinated with and make sure we have all voices heard. And so that's another part that we've uh, we've listed here that um, we think is really important. Uh, basically coordinating with MCPS so we can reach more people. Um, so I think that kind of gives you a, a, an overview of the master and sector planning process. I will mention, too, that um, when we have these monthly meetings, a lot of what we're doing is going through every single geographic area 
of the county with MCPS staff and sort of saying, okay, this is the status of this plan, making sure they have the latest information. And then that is an opportunity to ask questions. So even if we have this MOU, there's also that monthly meeting that is also so helpful. So we're all updated. Um, with that, I'm actually gonna turn it over to Darren um, to talk a little bit more about park planning, so. Great, thank you. Um, Darren Pluche, Park Planning and Stewardship. So for the MOU, um, as it regards to parks, um, we kind of have two, two sections. One is how we uh, run our, our park planning processes, and that is fairly straightforward. It basically emphasizes that it emphasizes good communication. So as we're developing our uh, pros plan, which is our um, policy plan that we develop every five years as we develop park components to uh, planning department master plans and sector plans, and as we develop individual park master plans, we're communicating with MCPS and making sure that we're taking into account the needs and opportunities uh, to support uh, students by you know, sometimes co-locating parks and schools um, or developing parks that are gonna serve uh, the student, student body. Uh, a couple of examples of, of collaboration, for example, I mentioned the, the PROS plan, which is our, our five-year policy plan. Um, we need to make sure that we are incorporating information about the uh, school field inventory in our, in our field inventory analysis. So we're, we're integrating the parks fields with the school fields and making sure that we're having a holistic view. So just kind of data exchange and communication like that as, as we do our plans. And then also, you mentioned the last meeting in the bus tour. One of the great outcomes of that meeting for us was um, you all worked with us to help us put our pros survey into every high school and we got hundreds of response from high school students that informed our our plan, which is a, was a rare treat for us to have access to that many uh, students. So, uh, so thank you for that collaboration and a perfect example. Um, and then on the other side is how making sure we have an established process for how we coordinate on um, school projects that have park impacts. So one of the things, you know, you know, it's my my division is park planning and stewardship. So the stewardship piece is a really core aspect of our uh, mission and making sure that we minimize um, impacts for non-park uh, uses of, of parkland. And so we have a lot of pretty, pretty you know, rigorous processes to make sure that we're reviewing uh, concepts early so we can work with an applicant, whether it be schools or DOT, um, to make sure that we're minimizing park impacts, but also making sure that the project is designed in a way that can actually be sort of built and implemented. So making sure that our, you know, that, that we just have we understand that, that we have this process and that both agencies kind of commit to going through that process. And then of course the park permitting process on, on once the, the concept comes through and just coordinating there. So the MOU basically enshrines like, you know, this is, this is our process. We all kind of know it. We're, we're pretty familiar with it and we're all gonna commit to going through that. So that's it for me. I don't know who I'm handing it off to. All right. So. So again, Seth Adams with facilities for MCPS. Um, I'm going to talk about the school capital projects piece. I, I, I think what I would start and say that um, one of the reasons, one of the core reasons we really felt uh, the need to develop an MOU uh, was that, you know, as a, a county agency, you know, we're, we're also a, a state agency. So part of our capital improvements program um, not only is to go through the approval process the, of, of the county, it's also to go through the capital improvements pr process of the state. 
Um, as such, though, as, as we go through um, a variety of the, uh, the school projects, uh, the, we are also viewed as, as a developer. I think many people, when you see a, a school project, you don't necessarily view it as uh, a developer as you would um, you know, for, for you know, a, a different community or, or residential, but, but in reality, that's, that's how we are viewed and that's how um, you know, some of the requirements are applied, which makes sense, right? Consistency is critical in, in a county when, when looking at um, these projects. However, one of the things that's really important for us is that um, our projects obviously you know, begin um, probably four to six years in advance of, of when you obviously see a, a school open. Um, and there's various steps of, of approval. There's various steps of funding approval. Uh, so one of the things that we felt was really important as part of this MOU is that we have this collaboration as early as possible. Uh, one of the things that we continually say is that it's not the school's money, it's not the, the park's money, it's not you know, the, the planning department's money, it's the county's funds. It's all one pot. So you know, making sure that we understand uh, what the goals are, how we can fit into with, within all of the, the various master planning, whether it be for, for pedestrian and bicycle safety, or whether it be part of transportation, whether it be part of park um, improvements, to make sure we know that and we're involved and we have those, those conversations early and often, uh, so that when we do go and, and request funding, as, again, I think everyone knows the, the, the Board of Education requests that funding from the, from the county executive and ultimately the county council, that we, we have the background to be able to support our requests. And, and so part of, uh, again, a big part of this MOU is that we have a unified front going into these funding requests. We have a unified front in saying that, no, we're not just here to uh, build a school, we're here to improve the overall community um, with various aspects. Um, and, and for us, a big part of it was making sure there was no sort of surprises, things that we didn't miss um, and, and create challenges at the very tail end of projects, which I, I believe we're gonna talk about mandatory referral and where that fits into the overall process. So we wanted to make sure a lot of this was happening very early on. And, and so that, again, the collaboration that we heard from um, you know, Dr. McKnight and others is, is alive and well from start to finish. And, and so, again, our, our process, um, you know, as you all may know, we're part of a biannual CIP, which, which again, that's Parks is, is part of that as well. Um, you know, again, this year is the on year, so we'll, we'll, be, uh, we'll be presenting projects and, and hopefully, you know, the work that we've gone through from the, from the MOU will be presenting to those funding bodies, um, you know, the, the well-rounded county uh, community whole approach of, of what we need to, to make those big impacts in, in different parts of our, of, our, of our county. So, again, that's the big part from our end. Um, I think we've done a fantastic job of, of trying to figure out some of those nuances. I think there's some really neat things we're talking about to try to bring the planning board um, into some of these conversations much earlier so that you're a part of it versus you know just, just reviewing a set of drawings that are almost all finished at the end. So we want you to be part of it. You want us to be engaged. Um, and, I, and I believe that's where uh, this MOU will, will allow us to go. So with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Atul, who's been also a great partner in, in our school design work. Thank you, Seth, and uh, hello, everyone. I just want to say that you know this idea of collaboration is is personal to I think a lot of us. I every morning I I walk my daughter to Sligo Creek Elementary School, and then I take my son and put him on a bus to go to Oakview Elementary School. So, 
we are the beneficiaries of of our combined um, sort of efforts and it's really in our sort of deepest of personal and communal sort of interest to have great schools so that's why i think we're all here um, i did want to take the moment to build on some of seth's remarks um, and just say that you know the school design working group was really established at the directive of both the boards the board of education and the planning board both told us that hey why don't you guys get together roll up your sleeves and really come up with some ideas on how this collaboration can go smoother better uh, and form a long lasting relationship so that's what we did we 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 formed the working group the school design working group Carrie Sanders was a a, a big part of that Seth and Adrian were, were a big part of that um and this was really great cuz for the first time we had staff from all the agencies including planning mcps parks mcdps dot and even sha kind of getting together and talking about how to make the process better while not being in the pressure cooker of making decisions right so that was really helpful for us to take the time to work through all the issues and the group met monthly for about a year um and at the end of it we came up with a a proposal for a process that would do exactly what Seth was just saying really look beyond just the 60 days of mandatory referral review and look at the full life cycle of planning and design for a school and see where are the opportunities for problem solving and collaboration um and the goal behind all of this was to really look at that bigger time frame um and come up with sort of opportunities to workshop meet discuss problem solve so that the end product of the of the whole thing and when the school is built out of the ground it's meeting our shared goals of safety of uh, vision zero safe routes to school also providing schools and school sites as laboratories for learning for kids so that they can really understand um aspects of sustainable design aspects of civic space all the things that now we know are so important for having a a just and functioning society so we want these to be sort of teaching instruments in themselves uh and we also want to make sure that the school facilities and the parks facilities and the rec facilities that are associated with them are equitably accessible to the communities around them and that we are doing uh this in a way that creates fiscally responsible infrastructure knowing that the budgets for schools is so tight and there's so much demand on every dollar and cent of public funds so we we went through the process and we also looked at another aspect of the working uh, working group was we looked at our clocks this is as much an exercise in synchronization as it is in collaboration um mcps has their own kind of you know rhythm of planning and building schools uh we as a planning department have our own clocks for reviewing mandatory referrals dps reviews stormwater within a certain time frame sha and dot look at uh, traffic studies and road design and brts and bike lanes and within a certain time frame and so this group really tried to look at all the clocks and try to sort of lay them out sequentially and propose uh, opportunities for all of us to meet strategically so we can keep the ball moving forward because if one of these clocks breaks the whole time frame gets impacted for everybody and we want to sort of avoid that sort of interruption and the last thing i would say is like this really helped us to kind of understand how mcps engages with the community how we are responsible to share public information and really try to find opportunities there for 
participating, for example, in your meetings that MCPS has with the community and hearing directly some of the community aspirations and concerns so that when we give comments about design or layout, they're informed by that aspect as well. Um, and I think overall it's been a really good effort. And in the next slide, I think it just shows that, you know, instead of just looking at the mandatory referral, which is a 60-day, very short time frame, we really want to extend that collaboration to all four phases and start to work with our school partners during those phases so that by the time we come to the, man to the mandatory referral hearings, all the problems have been sorted out. You know, we've rolled up our sleeves, we've found the solutions, and everybody's sort of behind this. Because at the end of the day, we are doing this for the kids and the neighborhoods that are around these schools. And I think most of us have a very vested interest in succeeding here. So uh, looking forward to getting this MOU hopefully approved soon so we can put it into action and continue to have a strong partnership with you all and all the agencies that are involved. So. I'll pass it back to you because um, I don't know who's going next for the sure. study. So uh, that's, that's all we had in terms of presentation for this. I'm checking our time. We actually have six minutes left here. So it gives us an opportunity if there are questions or discussion, I'll open it up. Um, just so that I'm understanding the MOU, it brings you both agencies together sooner so that you can work out or align, better aligned so that when projects come before the planning board for approval, uh, all the I's are dotted and all the T's are crossed and we get across the finish line without too much trouble. Am I understanding that correctly in layman's terms? Yes, essentially that is. Uh, and it, so you've got a copy of it there and what you'll see that what was on these slides were things that we took directly from the tables that you'll find in the MOU. So we tried to identify the different stages or processes or phases within a particular planning process. So it's not just the school projects, but it's also our master planning process, the park planning process. And then we've identified what roles the other agency plays in that particular process and what our desired outcomes from that interaction are. So that it's kind of clear going in you know, here's what we're expecting from you, MCPS, in our planning process, and here's what you're expecting from us in your capital planning process. Gotcha. Thank you. So, Jason, um, what what would be the next steps? So we can talk internally. What would be the next steps of getting this signed? You know, is it um, who are the key players in in that? And so we can we we can talk about those next steps. Okay, so <clears throat> I think we've had our, so I know we've done it. I will say we have a data sharing MOU with MCPS, which has been outstanding. Uh, it's been really helpful in our process uh, our, the, with the, the growth and infrastructure policy to be able to get enrollment data. It's scrubbed of all personally identifiable information, and we use that to calculate student generation rates uh, that under, help us understand the impact that new development has on school enrollments. We've also then been able to work with that data and give it back to MCPS for use in your projection work and other uh, data, data needs that you all have. Um, and so I know having gone through that process before, once we think we've got the MOU all worked out, language, it takes a little while to get through the, the, the legal review. And so I, my understanding is where we're at now is we're pretty close to finalizing the actual language. We just need to get it now into the hands of our legal staff to kind of dot all the I's and cross all the T's. 
But I would say, though, that the spirit of the MOU, we're not just waiting until it's signed right, to, right. To, to implement what's here. So um, as we start, as we begin, again, we're starting this, the, the CIP process now. Um, we're, we're having conversations about potential projects. What, how, do, how do those projects, how do they fit within the master planning that you have existing, what you're thinking about changing in the future, really? So, so I would just say, you know, we're, we're not waiting until it's time to start. It is something that, you know, based on that, that work so far, it's, the wheels are in motion. Um, it's just sort of that final, uh, as Jason said, final, final legal review and then ultimately sign and, and move forward. But we've, we've actually, in reality, been, been implementing this for, uh, for quite some time. Yeah, no, that's that's great. I know, and Jason has said that we've been collaborating on a you know it, in real time. But it, sometimes it would just be good to my my developer hat, you know, is, is to you know get that behind to get the actual agreement behind us. And if we can somehow, you don't have to say, uh, come up with a time frame that we we can we can shoot toward to getting that signed. That would be great it would, for us. And so we can move on. But it would be nice to you know maybe within the next couple of weeks you could talk to your Attorney, uh, they could say, "Yeah, we're we're shooting toward a time frame that would be helpful here for us." Okay. All right. So the uh, the next portion is to go over the MCPS boundary study update. So, um, as you heard, uh, boundary studies are 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 not a a. Um, an easy item. They're not necessarily as straightforward. There's a lot of engagement that occurs. There's a lot of um, existing structures. There's a lot of existing elements that are, you know that that have resulted because of school boundaries. Um, but what I would say is the school boundary process actually is is going to sort of map out some of the other pieces of today's discussion. Um, for for me and and I think as we as we talk uh, with Jason and and the teams. Just the idea of a boundary process does bring together a lot of the policies, a lot of the history of this county, um, and, it, and it actually allows for an opportunity uh, to, to, again, bring a lot of the things that we've all been working on together uh, and, and, and start to shape um, what's, what's next for, for this county. The reason I'm saying that is not, we're not just talking about you know, a, a small service area. Um, what, we're, what we're about to engage in is multiple high school boundary studies um, because of opening uh, two new high schools as well as an expansion of, uh, of another high school that is gonna result in a, uh, an evaluation of 16 of our 25 high schools um, and all middle schools associated with those. And so when you think about that, that's, that's almost entering into the territory of a, of a countywide type of a, of a lens of view. Um, so the first slide I'm going to show you is the, uh, the oh, I, I get to do it, okay. It went the right way, okay. The next slide is the, the Woodward High School project. Um, the Woodward High School project, you know, is obviously one that has gone through the, uh, the planning board. We actually just came a couple weeks ago for phase two of the mandatory referral. Um, this project uh, is obviously the reopening of a high school, but it's the, the reason for the reopening of the high school is to relieve um, significant overcrowding within many of our down county consortium schools, as well as the Walter Johnson High School cluster. The Board of Education also approved, including uh, the Bethesda Chevy Chase and the Walt Whitman High School clusters as part of that evaluation. 
And, and again, when we start to talk about some of these different um, policies, growth and in infrastructure, pedestrian master plan, equity and, and racial disparities, um, a lot of that is gonna come together in our, in our work around this particular boundary study and then beyond. Uh, this, this particular one, we're, we're obviously, the, the process itself, um, we are going to hire a consultant. That, that process is, is in progress. Um, you know, we, we heard loud and clear from many of our community members, they want to be involved in all aspects of this. And it's not just parents, it's, it's neighbors. You know, neighbors that, that say everything from, what about my property values? What about, you know, what, what's going to happen around transportation? What's going to happen with traffic? What's going to happen with... Uh, pedestrian safety, what's, what's going to happen? There's just a lot of questions. And that's where I think that these two boards are, are, are really need to, to be in sort of lockstep in terms of understanding what, what it means to change a school boundary in, in, this, in this county. Um, it means everything from understanding walk zones. It means everything from the, the safety of students coming and going from schools. Uh, it, it means understanding the long-term growth potential of individual schools. We don't want to change a boundary um, and then five, six years later have a school that's over capacity um, and having the same challenges over again. So, so the process is, is going to be quite lengthy. It's going to have an, a considerable amount of community engagement um, and, and engagement that I, I, I fully hope that the planning staff and, and even planning board members uh, are, are involved in because there's always lots and lots of questions about um, what is in store, what's next, what, what is going to happen in terms of, of you know, changing service areas. Um, so the, the, the Woodward project um, is currently scheduled to open in uh, the August of 2026. That's also tied to our, our Northwood High School expansion. Uh, so we're almost doubling capacity of Northwood. We're, we're adding um, right around 2,300 seats at Woodward, and that's going to impact a lot of schools. It's going to have a lot of conversations around program. It's going to have a lot of conversations about the work that you're actively involved in today from, from a policy standpoint. So we just wanted to share that. We wanted to share the background. We wanted to share that it is, it's, in, it's in progress, it's happening, and, and we will start to have uh, this engagement that's going to start up this spring. If we go to the next slide. Um, the school that's on the heels of this, and I thought the maps were important because you can see the ones we just talked about, the, the Down County Consortium, um, Walt Whitman, uh, Bethesda Chevy Chase, Walter Johnson. Um, when we start to think about Crown High School, which is in, located in Gaithersburg, that's also a new school intended to, to uh, relieve capacity at a variety of, of neighboring schools. So, um, you know, we have talked about, uh, while the board has not set the, the scope of work for that boundary, that is something that will be coming up in this CIP, um, but it will relieve uh, capacity at Richard Montgomery, uh, Thomas Wooten, Quince Orchard, Northwest High School, Gaithersburg High School. Um, and as you can see in the map, there's, there's also the potential to include uh, Churchill High School because they are also seeing some, some utilization pressures. So, so again, when we start to think about the, the Woodward project, we think about the Crown project. Um, right now, Crown is expected to open the year after, so we will have those boundary processes happening at the same time. Um, and then I'm going to go to the next slide, which shows uh, the northern part of the county um, and Damascus High School with that expansion and the expansion of Damascus to relieve capacity of Clarksburg and, and others. So you can see from a boundary study perspective, this is going to have reaches to all areas of the county. Um, 
it will be, you know, obviously a conversation piece at many dinner tables. It will be something that you, you most likely hear at, obviously we'll hear, hear about it from our school board, um, you know, public testimonies, but I have a feeling, you know, at, at future master plans, you're going to start to hear about it at the planning board level as well. So we thought it was important to share these dates, um, to share the, the magnitude of this. Um, this, is, this is, again, something that, um, you know, not many school districts, a lot of school districts will do smaller boundaries, but we've seen such growth over the past two decades um, that the growth that we've seen through the elementary school is now at the secondary level, and it, it involves opening new high schools. And when you open new high schools, it involves boundary, boundary changes. So um, again, it's just something that we wanted to share tonight and, and make sure uh, you know, the planning board is aware, understand the timelines, and, and also um, reach out and say we would certainly welcome the support of, of the planning team throughout this process because, again, this is uh, it's one that's going to be very impactful, and it's one that um, I do believe it's a lot of the work that's been put in place for, for different policies is going to come to fruition in this, in this process. So um, that, if there's any questions, we'll, we'll open up the floor. In regard to the demographic of the students, um, I know that there are some elementary schools that they are have they are being shrinked. You know, I know that the one that is in my uh, community, the elementary school is losing students, and I'm just thinking that it is that people stay there and they don't move. And what happens that it's going to be an older generation, and sometimes the younger generation have uh, may not be able to move to some. You know, I'm in Gatorsburg, not uh, to be able to move to those areas. Have you seen any change of demo uh, demo uh, demography in regard to the student population that could impact some of these boundaries within the three or four years from now? So, so that's a great question, one that I think, again, the work of the planning board, um, the work of, of what we do at the, at the school system, there's, there's four factors that go into the boundary study analysis. You know, one, one obviously being enrollment, um, you know, one being geography, one being um, demographics, and then there's one that's just about consistency. Um, you don't want to change students, you know, move schools over and over again. Um, but one thing that uh, is, is very, very evident to us is, you know, and obviously to you as well, is that um, the, the different pockets throughout this county, you know, we do, we go from extreme wealth to extreme poverty. And, you know, our, our schools are really at the heart of, of trying to respond to how to navigate those extreme sort of bookends of, of, of what we see. Um, so, again, we, we do see certain areas where enrollment at the elementary school is, is declining, but that's also declining at the high school level, and that's why it's important to include multiple schools in the boundaries so that you know, we're not overbuilding. Um, but at the same time, I, I do think from a, from a demographic standpoint, we, we, we do, from a, a, a joint board perspective, have to have some real honest conversations around what, what, are the, what, are the, what is the current state 
how do some of your, you know, your planning initiatives, are, will they address some of those challenges? And then how is the school system a part of helping you address some of the challenges that exist? So I, I'm not exactly sure if I'm answering your question in full, but I, I would say that demographics is a big part of this, this, this boundary process. Um, and one that I think is going to be really challenging because of how, um, how our, our county has developed over the years and how we have extreme wealth in certain areas and we have extreme poverty. I mean, if, you, if we go back to the, um, the Crown boundary, uh, we, we, the Crown High School is right there near Thomas Wooten and Gaithersburg High School. And if you look at the demographics of those two schools, they're pretty much in the ex extremes of we have, we have poverty and we have extreme wealth. And it's smack dab in the middle between the two. And so part of this work is going to be how do we navigate that? How do we, again, provide all the opportunities to all of our students, um, but do it in a way that's, that's sensitive to transportation access, um, availability of parents, you know, you, you know, you name it in terms of, of those functions, and then how that fits in with some of the policies that you have in front of you as a planning board. So it is going to be an interesting process. And again, I think that's why we, we, are, we are saying these two boards are, are, are really going to, the collaborative spirit is really going to need to be there as we navigate this process because it's going to be impactful on, on many levels. If I could add to, so just really to uh, you, uh, welcome that, that opportunity to, to participate in this process because I think what you'll see here, those, uh, those of us on the planning side know that we've got a number of master plans underway right now that impact these same exact areas. The University Boulevard Corridor Plan impacts our Down County Consortium. The Great Seneca Plan is in this area. Uh, we've got the Clarksburg Gateway Plan that we're about to work on. Uh, so there are a number of master plans, that, that even the Tacoma Park Minor Master Plan Amendment. These are all plans that are, you know, touch these same school uh, clusters. And so it's really important that we continue to have a conversation about what those plans envision for the future of these communities. And uh, in a little bit, uh, Tanya Stern and Carrie McCarthy are going to give a little bit more background on some of the demographic shifts and things that we've seen in the county uh, that I think we have a lot of data that could also be helpful in informing the decisions and the, the work that the, the, the MCPS and the Board of Education are doing. Please. All right. Thank you, Chair Harris. Jason, thank you so much for bringing up that overlap. Um, I, I mentioned that earlier in my comments, but I think that exact concrete example that you just shared is really important in terms of development that you're doing in those areas and these are the same areas in which we're looking at continued uh, new school buildings and things that we are um, pulling on. Um, Seth, Adrian, the team have done a great job in working with our communications team to make sure that we're reaching out to populations within these school areas whenever we are doing something that we know is very sensitive to the community like a boundary uh, study. And so we've continued to become very creative in working with community partners and others to make sure we are hearing from the community uh, in which that work is happening. It would be a great opportunity to continue to work with you all as we think about expanded outreach. We found that sometimes we've heard from our families that the number of engagement sessions that happen <laughs> becomes problematic in terms of the participation, the stamina that it requires. You know, if we're having asking to come out to this meeting to get feedback and then this meeting the next week. Um, it may be an opportunity for us to think about how we can have some plan engagement together um, just to have our community members look at this is, this is how our entire community will be impacted, not just from an MCPS perspective, but from a planning perspective. And we're talk, taking all of these things into consideration um, 
in this work and in this particular case, the boundary studies. And so I think if we can become really creative and think about how some of that overlap will help, it will help us um, solve some issues that have been longstanding in the process, like engagement through boundary analysis, and especially at a time uh, which Setso described eloquently will be one of the largest mm -hmm. boundary analysis that we have done in the system. And so the engagement actually has to be at, at the top level in which that occurs to ensure that our communities are a part of that. So thank you. And I, I think your question was about uh, in your community, elementary school enrollment is decreasing. So it impacts everything else. But in other areas of the county, it's increasing exponentially. And yeah. so that is why boundary studies are so important every so often to be able to adjust. So uh, we want those seats filled, right? We don't want to, we can't build our way out of this, right? So we want to maximize seats. And sometimes we have to shift the boundaries so that we can maximize seats. And it's an important process, but it is sometimes hard for communities to yes. have that change. Okay, great. Um, so I think we'll move on to the next topic. Uh, before we do, I just wanted to give Ms. Yang an opportunity to introduce herself. Learn more from all of you. And, and, uh, Thank you. Okay, so uh, the next thing on our agenda is an uh, overview of the growth and infrastructure policy. And as Chair Harris mentioned just earlier today, the Planning Board approved the scope of work for the 2024 update of that policy. We're required to update the policy once, uh, once every four years by county law. And um, so just tell you a little bit about it first. It is, uh, so the, 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 in 1973, the count, county adopted a, an adequate public facilities ordinance, which basically says that we need to make sure that infrastructure is keeping pace with development. As you can imagine, in 1973, we had very different type of development and just a land use context in Montgomery County. And so we had places in the county where we were developing that we didn't have any roads, we didn't have any schools yet. And so... This was a policy that ensured that we had that infrastructure in place before that development could be approved. Well, now we're largely built out as a county and we're dealing with a different, uh, we're mostly a different type of development, mostly redevelopment and infill in areas where we already have infrastructure. But the question is, is it prepared to take on the, the impacts of the, that new development? And so the growth and infrastructure policy, it's been known by other things over the years, subdivision staging policy, annual growth policy. Um, it's the, the set of tools that the council approves for how we evaluate the adequacy of our infrastructure, primarily schools and transportation. The annual school test is a part of that. So every year we take, a, we take the enrollment projection data that MCPS releases and we use that to determine 
adequacy from um, the perspective of new development of each school in the, in the system. If a school meets certain utilization thresholds, future, four years in the future, then a developer has to make what we call utilization premium payments. These are on top of impact taxes. These are payments that are tiered. So the more a school is projected to be, uh, the higher the projected utilization for a school is, the more the developer has to pay. So I'll show you a little bit about exactly how this works. Uh, this is the results of the most recent, uh, the FY24 test. So this is what is applicable right now. Uh, and you can see that there are three high schools that meet utilization premium requirements, uh, Blake, Paint Branch, and Clarksburg, uh, no middle schools, and four elementary schools. So this goes back to when this policy went into effect, uh, took effect initially in 2021. You could see the, the, the bar graph on the left, the series of bar graphs that the way they're decreasing, we're having fewer and fewer schools that actually meet these utilization thresholds, which we take as a good sign. It means that planning, you know, the schools are, are, are adequately providing the, the, the capacity that we need. And you can see on the right, then the map, this was the map in FY21, the darker the color, the higher the additional fee that the developer would have to pay to build in the, those areas. And you can see when we go to FY22, it shifts a little bit, it gets a little bit lighter, and we get less of the yellow and orange and that, oop, here we are in FY24, uh, it's, it's much smaller. So we take that as a good sign that, you know, the, the Board of Education and the, the work that you guys are doing is, 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 is working here. As far as the, the policy update itself, uh, this is our timeline. We kicked off today with a planning board briefing. We'll brief the board several times over the course of the next few months. Uh, but at this point, we're primarily doing our data analysis and starting to develop our recommendations internally, while at the same time engaging the community. We'll have advisory teams, technical advisory teams, on both the schools and transportation side, and we'll be meeting with community groups. Uh, we'll definitely be meeting with folks in MCCPTA and, and other communities, and we'll try to get all throughout the, the county. Uh, then we go to the board in the spring, and the board is required by county law to send its version, it's recommended policy to the county council by August 1st. And the council has to adopt the new policy by November 15th. So I want to highlight in, in 2020, there was a, a new requirement in the policy for the planning department to take on. And uh, it's this creation of the school utilization report. And this is something that we produce every year. And I think it's called the school utilization report. I think it's one of the more underutilized resources that we have available to county residents and uh, planners. Uh, basically, it shows a series of utilization trends at a countywide level as well as an individual school level. And I just want to real quickly recognize Hesu Beck, who's the person who's worked on this each of the last four years, and it's quite a, a, an undertaking. Uh, the nice thing about this is that it's like a one-stop shop to show you trends in utilization. Uh, so in this case, we're looking at a countywide elementary school. Uh, it shows uh, capacity in the dark bars. The blue bar is enrollment. This is countywide. The red line is the utilization percentage. And it goes back, I think, about 15 years. It shows the current year, and then it shows what's projected. And so you can see that all the numbers are down below, too. So it provides a lot of information and data in one... To, to otherwise pull this together, you need to go to the, the master plans for educational facilities for 
a whole bunch of different years. This is another way to look at it, and this kind of gets at what uh, Vice Chair Pedouin was talking about. Um, here, now, the, the pre, uh, uh, earlier year, 2008, is at the top, and the later year, I think 2028, is at the bottom. Now what we've done is grouped all of the elementary schools into different bands of utilization. So blue is utilized at that particular year at 90% or less of capacity. Green is 90 to 105, yellow 105 to 120, orange 120 to 135, and red is over 135. So you could see a good trend happening here in, in the schools that we've got fewer and fewer that are in the red and the orange area. Uh, but it also means that we've got projected a lot that are in the blue area, and this gets at President Silvestri's point that, uh, you know, there, there are a significant number of schools that are uh, on the lower end of utilization or projected to be. We also try to incorporate housing data into this. So this right now is just a snapshot. This is 2022. Uh, we hope as we work on this more and we get more time um, that we can do trends analysis on this as well. But this shows you for each, in this case now we're looking at high school, but we have this at all three levels, high, each high school, each elementary school, and each middle school. Uh, it shows in 2022 the number of housing units that were sold in that service area. It shows the number of units that were built, and it breaks, the, breaks those down by uh, single-family attached, which are townhouses, single-family detached, and then also multifamily. This gives you a sense of sometimes when you see enrollment growth happening, you know, one of the questions we ask with the adequate public facilities uh, piece is, is it development that's causing the enrollment surges? And a lot of times we're seeing that it's not, especially if what we're seeing mostly being built are multifamily. And then it's got individual school uh, trends as well. So in this case, Seneca Valley High School, you see where the new school opened up, the capacity increased quite significantly. Um, and uh, the nice thing about this also, in the way the report's set up, it allows you to click and immediately go to one of the adjacent schools if you want to get a sense of what's going on in the area. Uh, and then in the top right, it shows the results of the annual school test for that particular school. In this case, Seneca Valley, where it's uh, projected to be, it doesn't require any utilization premium payments. So that's all I had on uh, the growth and infrastructure policy. I tried to squeeze a lot in there very quickly. Uh, if there are any questions, I'm happy to answer them. We will be engaging MCPS uh, as part of our school's technical advisory team. Again, they were really helpful uh, last time. Adrian, um, and uh, we look forward to continuing the conversation on that. All right, so now I'm going to pass it on. If there are no questions, I'm going to pass it on to Eli Glazier, who is the uh, project manager for our pedestrian master plan and uh, had a, quite a significant ac uh, uh, accomplishment this past week as the county council had took a straw vote to uh, unanimously uh, approve the that the plan, and so we just have to finalize it with a resolution. So, Eli. Uh, thanks, Jason. Um, next slide, if you could. Um, so for those who don't know, uh, the purpose of this master plan, which is sort of the first pedestrian plan that the county's ever done, is to make walking and rolling safer, more comfortable, more convenient, and more accessible for people of all ages and abilities across the county. Um, I think as part of this planning process, um, we, sort of recognize sort of the essential nature of schools and school transportation in that question and achieving the vision and goals of the plan. 
I think first just the central nature of schools in our communities and then also the vulnerable the most vulnerable pedestrians in our communities are, are often children walking to school. So uh, the status of this plan, uh, we kicked off in 2019, as uh, Jason said. Uh, we've gotten through work sessions with council, unanimous support in the straw vote, and then I'm actually putting together the resolution uh, for council right now. Um, there are several, I think, key actions in this plan related to MCPS. Um, some of them are here, and we can talk about these further if people are interested, but um, just when it comes to uh, how buildings are located, um, so making sure we're locating schools and other public buildings in ways that prioritize safe and direct pedestrian access, um, working to identify opportunities to find school sites in infill locations that are more walkable, so uh, we um, can be more so schools can be more conveniently located to more people in a walkable area. Um, next slide. Um, another big piece of this uh, from a pedestrian safety and education perspective is um, working to um, do more bicycle and pedestrian safety educational programming, whether that's MCPS with Montgomery County Rec, the public library system, um, thinking about sort of rethinking the Safe Routes to School program that we have in Montgomery County uh, from one that's largely based um, for both the infrastructure and education pieces in Montgomery County Department of Transportation to one where the educational and encouragement pieces are more integrated into the day-to-day -day, uh, curriculum of uh, Montgomery County Public Schools. Um, and then the last piece here, um, We've talked a lot about sort of pedestrian safety um, already in this meeting today, uh, but looking for opportunities uh, within each school catchment area to identify and publish walking and bicycling routes to school, and then working uh, as MCPS, as MCDOT, as the planning department to identify opportunities to improve those routes so more parents feel safe allowing their kids to walk and bike along them to get to school. I think a piece that we've tried to bring up uh, throughout this process in terms of MCPS and with schools is that just the opportunity that investing in pedestrian infrastructure presents um, in terms of reducing the uh, school district's sort of longer term operational costs when thinking about all of the busing that occurs uh, to get people around sort of pinch points and unsafe situations when um, they may live or work very, live, sorry, live very close to a school um, and they get, people get bust. So thinking about opportunities to make shorter term capital investments in collaboration with MCDOT or SHA, um, that would then lead to many, many years of reduced busing um, and the savings that would accrue as part of that. Um, one school that I like to talk about, if Jason could switch uh, this, oh, sorry. Um, could we go to the next slide, actually? Uh, one school that I would love to talk about in this context um, is Harmony Hills Elementary School. Um, I'm sure many people here are familiar with it. Um, it's located between Connecticut Avenue and Georgia Avenue and Aspen Hill. And um, the, there's a large multifamily development on Hewitt, sort of to the east of Georgia Avenue, and all of those kids, have, if they don't get driven to school, have the option to get bus to school, but they're not encouraged to walk to school and they live a quarter mile or less away from the school. So just opportunities to identify and address these pinch points and these dangerous crossing locations 
um, would provide a lot of benefits in terms of cost savings, but then also independence and physical fitness and sort of all the reasons that we know and encourage people of all ages to walk. So uh, we can go back to this slide before. But um, in addition to some of the other recommendations, I just wanted to highlight one um, that we've had, I think, a really tremendous collaboration with MCPS on already. Um, as part of this plan, we conducted uh, a student travel tally uh, where in, we first did this in 2019, uh, 2020, uh, right before the pandemic, and we surveyed um, over 70,000 MCPS students at schools across Montgomery County to understand how they get to and from school. Um, and that is data that's very important for us to help understand uh, sort of what the baseline pedestrian conditions are in these different school environments, and then uh, to help us understand over time how um, how changes and recommendations that have been implemented in this plan are leading to more kids walking to school. So um, that's something we hope to, to continue to do. We have um, been in coordination with, with CAT at district operations about uh, the next iteration of this survey, which should hopefully happen sometime in the fall. And she's been fantastic uh, to work with. So really looking forward to um, getting much closer to 100% response rate. I think they did something very cool with the, the laptops and being prompted by a survey for each student, which uh, I thought was a very impressive sort of use of the technology infrastructure that you all have to accomplish this. So um, I think that's all I have. But if there are any questions, happy to talk. If I could just add, the nice thing about this tally is to once we get this information about for each individual school, get, we've got uh, maps for every school like this, and we could see is there a connection between schools where we see very few students walking to school, but many that live within that catchment area. Um, what's the reason? Is the reason something structural that we need to make some improvements in this map? There are, our pedestrian level of comfort map gives us a sense of what, what it might be causing that. Um, so this is actually a, um, a topic that's really close to my heart, especially lately. Um, and uh, I, I just wanted some clarity on the coordination that's going to take place with uh, the council passed Bill 1123 last week. And it's specifically to look at the infrastructure, right, of children walking to school in school zones and also the um, looking at the amount of accidents that have happened in those areas. So there's a lot, I think, going on with pedestrian safety and looking at ensuring that our most precious treasures, which is our kids, get to and from school safely, whether it's walking or whether it's on buses. So my question is, how is that all going to be coordinated Right, And then I know you're going to talk about equity next, but how then do we put that lens of equity into all these things that we have so far spoken about, specifically when it comes to having the community engage in communities that are most affected um, at a higher level than other communities uh, and in certain areas, demographics of the county. Um, because even though I, you know, I love the fact that 70,000 students participated, I would love to know the breakdown of demographics and geographics 
you know, where those students actually reside and uh, what demographics they represent. Because um, one of the things I think that I find, one of the reasons why I ran for the Board of Education is that there are certain groups sometimes that we make a lot of decisions about at a big level that we do not talk to them at the level where we're starting to look at or make the decisions. And then we wonder why sometimes things don't change. And I'll give you a quick example with Cluxburg. So we have students, you know, that we know that we have developed a route for them to walk safely to school, but it takes a long time. So what they do is they go on Baltimore Road and there's no sidewalks on Baltimore Road and they're in high school. So when they're walking, it's pitch black outside, right? So just kind of keeping in mind some of those things from, that's why I love the student survey because they're the ones who have the biggest effect on this. They're our clients. So I just wanted to kind of get an idea because today the council had a hearing about this and the data and so on. But I'm data driven, but I'm also in talking to the people that this affects the most and, and making sure that their voices are being heard when we're making the big picture decisions. Yeah, I think, I mean, on the first piece, um, we, the planning board and planning staff were very supportive of the Safe Streets Act and several of the components of that, um, including the no turn on red and the leading pedestrian intervals and things like that were, are actually other recommendations in the pedestrian master plan. Um, so I think that uh, the recommendation in this plan to um, identify proactively those pedestrian and bicycle routes to school and then to work to uh, improve them so that they're safe and comfortable for everyone and people use them is, I think, I think the spirit of that is a much more proactive and forward-thinking approach where I think the piece of the legislation about uh, crashes in school zones and in pedestrian-involved crashes and things is is more reactive. And I think they're both important, um, but I think they sort of work together in that way. Um, I think the recommendations that I identified here and the other recommendations in the plan are not the plan getting adopted and approved is really just the first step in an ongoing conversation about appropriate implementation. I think the planning department, we recognize that for many of these, we are not, we're not the lead agency. We're not the agency responsible for implementing them. But um, our role instead is uh, working to facilitate, to provide information, to help coordinate so that they're implemented, like you said, um, with um, a with public engagement and making sure they're implemented in a way that um, they are as successful as they can be given um, sort of all the stakeholders that are involved. And, and I would just also add that uh, a main element of the, the plan was an existing conditions report where we, we found, you know, that we see more crashes, more uh, pedestrian crashes, uh, crashes that involve pedestrians with fatalities or severe injuries in areas with um, our, our equity focus areas, our equity emphasis areas in the county. And so I think, you know, even the, the more proactive approach that Eli was talking about is something that does have an, equi an equity component to it because too often it's the communities that are, you know, well organized and the loudest are the ones where attention is given. This gives us an opportunity to say where is the need the greatest and making sure that, you know, prioritization is given to where the need is. 
Um, and uh, I think we'll get in a little bit more on some of the equity issues and what we're doing in the planning department on that end uh, in, in, in the next session, too. Okay. Any other? All right. If not, then uh, that's here we go. And I'm going to turn it over to Tanya. Great. Again, Tanya Stern, Acting Planning Director with the Planning Department. This conversation is actually a really great segue into this portion of the meeting to talk about, to first talk about what the Planning Department has been doing to advance equity as part of our work. And um, as Jason noted, data is, is a very critical part of that. So we will talk in more detail about that. But I'm going to sort of set the stage in terms of, of our work. And then I'll also turn it over to Carrie McCarthy, who's the chief of our research team, to dig deeper into our, our data work. So first, just want to start with you know, looking at the, the not just the demographics of this county. We all know this is a very, very diverse county. Um, but particularly just highlighting how that diversity has increased over the uh, previous decades. If you look at that first bar chart, that is, I'm going to look at my slides, a little bit easier for me to see. The first bar chart is from 1960, and the last one is from 2020. And the dark blue is the percentage of the white population. And you can see over the uh, intervening decades that the white population, in terms of the percentage of our residents, has decreased while the other colors, the other parts of the bar charts, represent uh, Hispanic residents, black residents, Asian American residents, and others. And so obviously you can see just from that how uh, much more diverse the county is. It's now uh, almost 60% of residents of color, about a third are uh, residents who were born in other countries who immigrated to the United States. And then if you look at the map um, next to it, this is 2020 data. This was from a uh, trends report that we did back in 2020 that we hope to update uh, in, an, in the near future. But it, it represents the spatial distribution of our residents by race and ethnicity. And uh, where there are um, certain groups that are predominant um, or the majority, you'll see the uh, different colors. But if you look at the yellow, that is the part of the county or the parts of the county where there is no one race or um, uh, racial or ethnic group that is more than 50%. So those are the parts of our county that are probably the most diverse. Um, one thing I want to just put on your radar, we don't go into, into details in this presentation, but uh, we also have developed a, um, a GIS story map is the trends in racial and ethnic diversity for the county that if you look at that map, it goes into much greater detail and breaks it down by uh, different groups over uh, several decades to show the changes in diversity in the county, where those residents lived, how that's changed uh, over the decades. So we can certainly share that link with you all. It's a really great resource. Next slide. So the planning department has an equity agenda for planning that we have been uh, implementing since 2020. We actually created a framework document, which I will talk about in a bit more detail, um, and that we presented to the planning board and got their approval. And this is essentially our roadmap for how we can ensure that all of our departments work, uh, both in terms of our external work and also internally, is grounded in advancing racial um, equity and social justice. And as part of that framework document, um, and uh, we have a web page that has a lot of resources, we talk about how this effort is ongoing and it will require constant attention to institutional racisms 
influence on all planning and zoning processes. And part of this effort is really just acknowledging that the planning profession over the last number of decades, particularly as during the time that this county really you know, grew in terms of de uh, development and population, uh, played a direct role in creating segregated um, communities that discriminated against different residents. And so we're still living with the, out the outcomes of those previous decisions. And so our role as planners now is to ensure that the work that we do through our master plans and development review uh, supports uh, equity for all of our residents and that we can both address those previous inequities uh, but also make sure that we don't create new inequities. Next slide. So as part of uh, implementing our equity agenda for planning, we've done quite a number of things in the last uh, three years. Uh, in terms of ongoing efforts, uh, this is a very broad category, but we apply an equity lens for all of our master plans. That covers a lot of different things that we do for all of our master plans. That's obviously looking at demographics, applying some of the different tools that Carrie will talk about, um, examining how, um, how different communities uh, developed, how, they, how, they how they've changed over time, and how that has impacted um, the diversity in those communities, the access to amenities for, for residents. That di uh, directly impacts also the next point, which is equitable community engagement strategies, which I'll talk about um, in some details about how we make sure that we reach um, all of our residents try to get folks engaged um, and not just have, you know, there's always folks who are always involved, but the reality is we have to we have to meet residents where they are and make sure that we can capture as many voices as possible. We also do certain things internally to support this work. Uh, for all of our master plans, we also have an equity peer review group. This is a uh, an internal committee of planners of different uh, and diverse expertise areas within a planning profession, but also uh, racially and ethnically diverse, who sort of apply a different, uh, an additional set of eyes and sort of brains to help to um, vet our uh, uh, strategies as we're proceeding with our plans, our communication strategies, our draft recommendations to make sure that we're, uh, we're not missing anything in terms of advancing equity. And then we also, for all of our planning department staff, we have about 150 employees. Uh, we require mandatory equity training, eight hours of uh, mandatory equity training every year. They, it's part of their evaluation so that we make sure, again, this isn't like a one-time thing where people can get trained, but this is, this is really an ongoing effort. And as part of our equity agenda, um, again, we've completed a number of tools, and, and Carrie's going to touch on some of them. Uh, Jason mentioned our equity, you can go back, yeah, the equity focus areas mapping. I mentioned our trans and racial and ethnic diversity story map. We've also done a neighborhood change analysis in the Washington, D.C. region that identified uh, where uh, there have been patterns of gentrification or displacement, as well as patterns of low-income concentration, which is we actually have seen more of the latter um, in Montgomery County. We've also done a mapping segregation project that uh, did research on where there were uh, racially restrictive um, covenants on housing within the Beltway. Um, over the, uh, the, the 20th century, so that's, that part is completed phase one. And we've also recently uh, completed a community equity index, which Carrie will talk about. Next slide. So we have Thrive Montgomery 2050. This is our newly adopted, not so newly, it's been almost one year, adopted general plan. Um, first time we've compre comprehensively updated the county's general plan in, in really over 60 years. Our general plan is essentially the, the long-term vision for um, 
how we will manage and plan for the future of growth in this county. It is a very much a high-level policy document. It covers a lot of different topics, uh, but sort of the, the key things to keep in mind is that it is grounded in these three pillars, economic health, community equity, as well as environmental resilience. So those three pillars are interwoven uh, throughout the plan's recommendations. Next slide. So um, equitable community engagement is, is absolutely critical in its success in what we do. And you know this isn't just about doing the right thing. This is about serving the residents uh, for this county and making sure that they can have successful futures and that our work will help them to accomplish that. And so we use a lot of different strategies to reach residents. Not everybody is going to come to a meeting you know, in the evening that we may hold. Uh, with that, we do hold in-person meetings as well as virtual meetings as standard practice now because you know, it gives people more options to getting uh, involved. Uh, but we don't just rely on those. We do uh, ads at bus shelters. We do uh, pop-ups and community events so we can get out into the community. We've also done placemaking festivals. For example, we did one for the Fairland and Briggs Cheney community um, last year while we were uh, conducting a master plan, which was an opportunity to re-envision um, a, a parking lot that could be uh, a future resource and whole set of amenities for residents, but it was also a way to capture you know, residents' ideas about the future of that community. We do online questionnaires. We also do uh, canvassing. We go to apartment buildings and knock on doors um, and you know, go directly to people's homes so that we can really reach people. Um, we also translate a lot of documents into multiple languages, um, whether they are uh, summaries of our plans. We've translated um, Thrive Montgomery 2050 into Spanish. We translate surveys. We translate ha handouts. We just want to make sure that you know, however people hear about our projects, that they have a way to, to get engaged and to, and to talk with us. Um, next slide. So with that, I will turn it over to Carrie McCarthy, and she can share more information about how we leverage uh, data and create data tools to support our equity work. Thanks, Tanya. Um, so building on the point about um, translation for our community outreach, um, this map shows um, census tracts which have at least 10% of the population re uh, report speaking English less than very well, and it highlights the predominant language. So this is one tool we use to identify um, when we're doing a master plan, areas of the county where we may need to deploy translation services. Um, one example um, is the purple, the Chinese area. You see sort of mid-county. Um, Mid-county is working on a plan in the Great Seneca area, which is just um, west of Shady Grove. Um, and they've done pretty deep engagement with the Chinese community up there. Um, but similarly, our outreach, we use both a data-driven approach Approach, but it also requires um, a local understanding of the community. So for example, in downtown Silver Spring, there's a significant Ethiopian community. It, you know, it doesn't show up on this map, but we also did translation into Amharic to reach that community. Um, so a lot of work by planners, um, sort of understanding how to reach people where they are. Next slide. Um, this is the, an equity focus 
area tool um, that we developed in 2020 as part of the general plan. Um, you know, at the time, we wanted a, a basic, it's really a binary tool, tra census tracts are in or out. And so the census tracts in yellow, we call equity focus areas, and they're defined as tracts that have a high percentage of low-income people, a high percentage of people of color, um, and a high, again, a high percentage of people who speak English less than very well. Um, and this tool has helped us think about how to target resources into these areas. It was used in the pedestrian master plan. Um, these 56 tracks um, represent 26% of tracks overall, um, but they contain 65% of the Hispanic population in the county. Um, people are um, twice as likely to just have a high school diploma or less. Um, household income is about half of the county overall, um, and there's also a much higher percentage of renters. Um, so again, this tool, when master planners go into an area, if they're going to an equity focus area, they know they might be dealing with a higher percentage of renters, um, people who are less educated and need to change their approach um, to meet, again, meet these people where they are. Next slide. Um, and this is our most recent tool. Um, we're calling it a community equity index. Um, you know, we like the simplicity of the equity focus areas, you're either in or you're out, but we also know in reality discussions about equity need to be much more nuanced, um, and that there are very advantaged areas of the county, and some of it is identifying, you know, what makes these areas advantaged, and how do we give um, people um, with, who are disadvantaged access to the resources in these areas. Um, so again, these are uh, is a demographic-based analysis. It has five variables. Um, it looks at income, education, housing, tenure, poverty, um, language proficiency, um, and the comparison is to the county um, overall average. So the blue tracks are tracks where these factors are generally higher than the county overall average, um, higher wealth, higher education levels. Um, the orange-red tracks are the most disadvantaged tracks. Um, so less advantage. Um, we spent a lot of time thinking about whether and how to include race in this analysis, and it's not included in the index because we decided that was a factor that people couldn't change, where something like your education level, your income level, your language skills, that's something that policy um, can help um, change people's circumstances. Um, but And then we can also use this index um, and apply it to the racial distribution. Um, so we basically find that the, the disadvantaged areas, the reds, the oranges, have much higher percentages of people of color. Um, and we also find that these areas, the most disadvantaged areas, have more children, um, which is something that you probably see in your schools. Um, so yeah, we're, we're excited about these tools. We're starting to deploy them, master plans, and, you know, and certainly as you get into the boundary studies work, we're happy to sit down with you and talk about how they can be useful in your work too. If I could just add something really quickly, you know, Carrie mentioned our equity focus areas mapping and also with our new CEI um, tool, these are really beneficial because you can overlay other data with it. So uh, Eli talked about the pedestrian master plan. He was able to overlay the EFA data uh, mapping with where pedestrian crashes have occurred and identify that uh, oftentimes in, in the equity focus areas, there are higher, um, there's a higher uh, prevalence of pedestrian crashes where there are injuries or fatalities. And so that really kind of emphasizes where these types of interventions are particularly needed. Yeah. 
So, so actually, I'm going to leave it on this slide, but um, the next portion is to talk about the MCPS anti-racist system audit and how it intersects. I mean, obviously, we've talked a lot about the anti-racist audit and the action plan and how it fits into an educational setting. But we spent a lot of time um, on our end really trying to understand, again, how it fits into our school facilities, um, how it fits within our, 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 our boundary areas, um, you know, our walk zones, really just really breaking it down and truly understanding, you know, what, what has existed over the years and, and what has attributed to some of the anti-racist um, elements that have been identified. I, I do believe, um, you know, hearing some of the policies, it's actually something, and, and seeing the data here, it, it is a great opportunity um, for, I believe, the planning department to really um, have a similar approach to some of the policies. And I'll just give you a couple of examples, and, and Ms. rivera Oven talked about this. But, but we've, we've really struggled with um, understanding what we have today from a, from a county structure, from a development, from a, uh, from a residential zone area, and then that, how that fits into you know, where, where we are from uh, not only an enrollment, but from a services, uh, from, from a boundary perspective, from a, from a program perspective. And I'll just give you an example. In talking about the Harmony Hills project, I think this might bring a couple things together. Army Hills Elementary School is 88% farms. Um, it's it's a significant one of the higher farm schools in in our in our school district. Um, thinking about it from the perspective of growth and infrastructure policy, if you were to look at that school today, it shows that there's available seats. But what we know is there's seven portable classrooms out there because we have the resources around um, you know our, our community schools, our Title One. Um, you know, it's a school-based health center, the, the different aspects to that. And then understanding, really, what, how is that school used throughout the day? Um, not only for, for school-age students, but for families. Um, how's the walkability impact that? Um, what do we do as a school district for a school that's, that's actually too small for its current population with the services that, that we provide? And then, ultimately, what does that start to look like? As you spread out around Harmony Hills, you see the farm state is still very high, you know, 80, 70 percentage. But, but, but the, the reality is, is you can't just start to move students further and further out, you know, because then that starts to, to compete against some of the other policies that we're talking about. You know, we are all focused on, you know, the pedestrian and bicycle safety. You know, but, 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 but the reality is we also have to think about how to transport students and families to different parts um, you know, for, for the variety of the reasons that we're talking about today, for, for services, for, for um, program, for access, for um, you know, different, different service needs. So I, I do think you know, as, as we talk more and more about this, and, and I do think the boundary study process is, is going to bring a lot of this together, Again, we've, we've, we've talked about the anti-racist audit and the action plan from the educational setting. But when you start to apply it to the county perspective, your data does show it. I mean, when you, when you look at um, you know, the, the information here, we have communities that, that have been developed and, and have, have really developed you know, with, with uh, you know, the poverty levels at high levels. And then you have other parts of the county, extreme wealth. And, and for us as a school district, trying to find balance between serving all students is very difficult because of that, particularly from capacity, particularly from access to program for, for other elements. So I do think um, you know, taking the anti-racist audit, combining it to the work that you've done, and really start to take that deeper policy review 
from, from the lens that we've ultimately, from Dr. McKnight, has, has taken us through that path. I, I do think it would be tremendously valuable for us all to look at it from a different lens and see um, you know, what makes sense moving forward. We all agree that making schools uh, as walkable as possible makes the most sense. But when you start to look at it from the community standpoint, who we're serving, who we're not serving from, from some of these schools, it, it, it may start to change some of the perspectives of how we, how we deliver services in the county. So um, I would encourage everyone to, to, to do some reading on the anti-racist plan um, and action plan. It's, it's, uh, it's been incredibly eye-opening for, for us as staff. Um, you know, I've been with the school system for over 15 years, and I think this has been a, a very game-changing moment for, for myself and all of us to really start to think about our work in a different lens, to think about it, not only what has just existed as the norm for years, but break that down and say, okay, what do we need to do differently moving forward um, to better serve our, our, our students and families? So um, not a lot of information on that from, the edu from, from today's context, but, but I just wanted to say those few words, and, and I do think uh, a slide like this around a community index uh, equity index is very telling and revealing about some of the the challenges that uh, that we're all facing, particularly from a, from a school services perspective. So, so thank you. I guess we'll open it up to any questions. It's on. Okay. I, can I just ask something? First of all, we're so lucky to have Seth on our on our team. Um, to understand a lot of these complexities. But I just wanted to say when, when, you know, this is such a great tool, so thank you. And I was gonna ask if we could please have a copy of this presentation and also a copy of um, some of the other things that you guys did uh, in, your, in the, your previous slides. I think you know what I'm talking about. Um, Cause that's really helpful for, for a lot of us, you know, this is supposed to be a part-time job. But um, just wanted to say that um, <laughs> after today, I'm a little, I'm a little sore. Um, but um, <laughs> it's been a long day. But I just, um, I just also want us to remind us that although in a in a in a perfect world, I would love a lot of my kids in areas like Up County. And I just want to give you a quick example, like the kids that that you know a Fox Chapel, right? That should be an easy walk to school. But I just want you to keep in mind there are other factors that affect the safety of children. One of them being that in that area, you know, we had the last three homicides. So there's actually kids who were going back to school, right, in elementary school, who had to walk across a crime scene, right? So it's not just sometimes the safety of cars, but it's the safety, safety. That as parents, and I think most of you here have kids, right? That is the most important thing that we want our children to have anywhere. So it's not just, you know, that kind of, but it's also the safety of a community. And I'm sorry, but unfortunately, in our beautiful Montgomery County, where I was raised and where I have raised my kids, not every neighborhood is safe. And I think we also need to be um, real about that when we have these conversations, that there are other factors, 
right? That you guys have no control over it, right? Because you're looking at the bigger picture. But the reality of the folks who live in those communities have to take into account. So thank you. Okay, if no other questions, we're uh, coming up to the end here. Uh, we've got our last segment, which is going to be by uh, Mike Riley, and I just want to acknowledge that uh, this will be Mike's final joint board meeting between the Board of Education and the Planning Board, and I'll let you explain that. Okay, well, thank you. You, you got me there. Uh, yes, I'm a veteran of a lot of these dinners. It's a pleasure to be here again. And uh, I am going to talk to you briefly about uh, fields. So could you go to the uh, next slide? So as, as said on the last item, I'm standing between you and your homes, between you and the uh, Lions at the Packers tonight, uh, and hopefully the Orioles clinching the AL East. So I promise this is going to be brief. Uh, this is a picture of one of the uh, elementary school fields that we've improved at the last year at Fairland. Uh, it's a diamond field where the outfield can be used for uh, various overlay sports. And you can see we really do make a difference. We go in and we uh, correct the soil. Uh, we improve the drainage. Uh, we plant the latest uh, cultivars of grass seed, which are much more durable. We put in the very expensive infield soil that drains well, and you can keep it smooth and drag it. And then, of course, replace the uh, amenities like the backstops and players' benches. So the end result is a better uh, field for the students at the school to use for uh, PE or sports or whatever. And then of course, for the community groups, the sports leagues to use on the evenings and weekends is a permittable field. And obviously from our side, that's a big goal to provide more capacity for the sports leagues. If you look at that field on the left, I can guarantee none of the sports leagues really wanted to permit that. They would look elsewhere. And now this is one that they will want to permit. Now, so next slide. Uh, just a little history about this program. It really kicked off with a bang back in 2000. There were some champions behind just improving, uh, not only improving the quality of the public fields at schools and parks, but increasing the capacity because people felt they had to drive too far to get to a good field. And, and so it's been a big effort. And the program basically goes like this. We renovate a field with CIP funding, and that's a construction project, like the one I just saw, showed you, where we'll actually be doing construction activities like improving the soil, replacing the amenities. Once we do that, we bring it into our program, and we maintain it on an annual basis with funds in our operating budget. So up to FY23, this program has spent about $5 million in capital program, uh, CIP funds for renovation of school fields, primarily at middle and elementary schools. And our future funding in our CIP to continue this program is $300,000 a year, which generally lets us do about four schools, uh, plus or minus per year, depending on the need for the renovation. Uh, in FY24, our operating expenditure for maintenance is $2.1 million every time we add 
uh, your fields to our program. We go back to the council in the subsequent year and get additional money to maintain those fields. So that number has been growing. That's the good news. That's stable. We have decent funding for the maintenance of the fields we've taken into your program. And to date, uh, we have taken 109 of 125 elementary and middle schools into the program. And that 125 is based on the number of those schools that we believe actually support permittable athletic fields. There's uh, some other schools that have smaller play spaces and the parks department doesn't get into those fields. So after all this time, there's 16 left that we have not got to. And I'm going to show you what those schools are in the next program. And simply from an equity purpose, obviously, we want to finish those schools uh, and then um, have dedicated CIP funding to go back to uh, the schools that we did 20 years ago, because this is a life cycle thing. This most heavily used fields uh, do get beat up. Um, I'll just tell you one, uh, council member Will Juando has dinged me twice in the last few years when he showed up with his kids to play at uh, Eastern Middle School. It's a great location. Those fields are extremely popular with sports leagues because of the location and they get walk-on use. And that's the type of field we need to get back to and improve it because our abilities and methodologies and knowledge is so much greater now than it was 20 years ago, we can really make a difference. Uh, next slide. These are the schools we haven't got to yet. At that $300,000 per year, it's probably gonna take us about four years to get all of these done. And at that point, any dedicated CIP funding, as I said, would go back towards uh, renovating the most in need, the most used, the most uh, down, you know, um, poorest quality fields across the county. And of course, we will look at that with an equity lens and work with your staff about uh, what those fields uh, should be. We do work with your team every year to figure out the priorities for the next fields. Uh, next slide. Uh, just another picture of Cedar Grove, a similar situation there with uh, no, no, no baseball, softball player really wants to play on a grassed infield like that. Uh, so we did uh, improve that field similarly. And in this one, we even added a little shade cover for the players to sit uh, in the little dugout area. And then I think the, uh, one more. I just wanted to cover this one too, Blair High School. This is a unique situation. We're generally not involved when in your high school fields or campuses, except with a few exceptions. Blair's a big exception because we actually own in fee, three of the fields there, the softball field where the girls' uh, high school team plays, uh, and it's permitted for community use, of course. The uh, baseball diamond where the boys' high school team plays and the Silver Spring Tacoma Thunderbolts also play there. We have a partnership and then other leagues, and then the stadium synthetic turf field uh, is ours. There were two other field areas on the site uh, that if improved would have provided much better experience for the students and student athletes and also uh, then open them up to be permitted for uh, community leagues. And you can't ask for a better location than Blair High School. It's between 495 University. Everybody would love to play there. So we've improved these two fields. The one up top is the one inside the track. Um, and then the one, there's another field which will be a diamond with an overlay behind the school that it's not even finished yet. That's taken just recently when the grass was starting to grow in. We're adding irrigation. 
We've added uh, very expensive improved soil, so they'll drain very well. And um, uh, these fields should be able to be maintained at a pretty high level going forward. And as I said, we'll get a lot of community use. And uh, the, the, the Blair will now be a destination for tournaments because you have five different fields there, which someone who has a tournament is looking for a campus with multiple fields. So I think this was a great project, and I'm glad we could collaborate on it. And I think the Lex one is my last. No, that was it. So if I ask well, for a takeaway here, there, this program has had different champions over the years. If you go way back, only you old timers will remember uh, Meredith Wellington on the planning board and uh, uh, C Steve Silverman on the county council. They were two kind of political champions at the time that got this kicked off in 2000. Uh, there was a recession several years later. It kind of went into a hiatus, and the program just sat idle for the better part of a decade where we just kept maintaining what we had done and no additional fields were coming in the program. And then it got jump-started again about four or five years ago, and uh, Hans Riemer, I would give credit to being the champion behind that. So um, we only have uh, $300,000 a year dedicated that number really should grow so that we could finish those remaining fields faster and then have adequate funding to get more of your fields that are the most in need uh, later. So um, I, as alluded, I am leaving at the end of the year, but I feel struck pretty passionately that we have uh, really in parks made it a top priority to build up our expertise and our energy behind maintaining athletic fields and uh, we want to continue maintaining yours and continue this program. And uh, it, it, it obviously is of great benefit for your students and great benefit for the community and the sports leagues. So thank you. That's all I have. We've come to the end of the night. And uh, I, this has been amazing for me. It's been my first one. And it's, it, I'm just so amazed at the talent in the room, you know, on both sides, the MCPS and planning and parks. And so I want to thank you for, you know, both for you, Jason, your lead in or, organize, helping organize this, but there's a lot that went on behind the scenes with the chair staff, um, making sure we had dinner tonight, making sure this was arranged. So, and, and also we have our technical staff here and our legal staff so that stayed this evening. So I really, really appreciate everyone. And then the, I, the theme that keeps coming through the night is is collaboration and coordination. And so I think that that's how we're going to continue to make great schools, right, by collaborating, coordinating. And I think it sounds like a lot. There could be a lot of data sharing through this. I mean, like the data yeah. you do, the data do overlap. And if I was, man, that, that the boundary study is going to be, a, you know, I, I'd be interested in knowing later how you do it because it's going to impact so many. And I don't know if there's a program you stick everything in and, or, or it's just people in a room with stickies on the wall figuring out how to do it. And, but I, that seems like a major undertaking, and I, we wish you well in any way we can help in that. Uh, we will. And then it's all about co-locating co meetings, you know, because we're sometimes going after the same residents, the same families. If there's any way we can, you know, with our master plan or our plans and you what you're doing and trying to, um, get residents together to talk about these boundary studies. So that's my part. Thank you, everyone. This is just wonderful, and we appreciate you know everyone getting together. I don't know if either of you have any parting remarks or. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs>
Um, no, thank you for hosting us. I think we are all in it together. We want to build um, thriving communities because thriving communities create thriving schools and we all benefit. So let's uh, stay in touch and keep working together. I appreciate it. I don't want to stand in between anyone in a game that's happening okay. tonight, I understand. But thank you so much to follow up on, and I look forward to our continued collaboration. Thank you, Chairman. Thank you. All right. Good night. All right. Good night.